Well, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem marks the beginning of Passion Week. And so we're going to pause our study of the book of 1 John, and we're going to begin looking at this week of Jesus' last week of Jesus' ministry. And it starts today on Palm Sunday because uh, this is when the week begins, and, and this is when the significant events begin. Jesus' triumphant entry is one of the few events of the life of Jesus mentioned in every gospel. And that is significant because each gospel writer's goal wasn't simply to leave us a historical account of Jesus' life. If that was the case, we would only get one gospel. We'd only need one. But that wasn't their goal. Each gospel writer, they wrote their gospel because they had a unique purpose for writing, and they had a unique audience in mind. They were trying to reach a certain crowd, and they selected specific things that would support their purposes and would apply to their audience. And so if an event made all four gospels that means it, it was significant because that event supported every purpose and applied to every audience, which means we need to understand its significance. My hope is that our study this morning, as it begins our journey into the events of Jesus' passion, by the end of next Sunday, we will better understand who Jesus is and be more in awe of our King than ever before. So we're going to look at three places in Scripture today. We're going to be in Matthew 21, will be our main text. We're also going to be in Zechariah chapter 9, just a little left of Matthew, and then we'll be in Psalm 118. So if you're looking to save a spot, because we'll be moving back and forth between these passages, Matthew 21, Zechariah 9, and Psalm 118. Matthew 21, Zechariah 9, and Psalm 118. We'll begin in Matthew 21. Matthew, writing his gospel, trying to reach his people, the Jewish people, he shares with us from his perspective of the triumphant entry three important things. And he starts off here with the first one in verses 1 through 5. It says in Matthew 21, verse 1, And when they drew near unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, Under the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And straightway he will send them. And all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell you the daughter of Zion, Behold, Thy king comes unto thee, meek, and sitting upon a donkey, and a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Matthew tells us the first thing he's trying to communicate to us here. He says, let me tell you what happened when we got to the Mount of Olives, and here's why this happened. So he's giving us an important truth here. He explains that the events here that Jesus was going to be at the top of the Mount of Olives and ride into Jerusalem on a donkey was something predicted and therefore fulfilled and it was predicted by Zechariah the prophet. Now, Zechariah the prophet, he is the second to last book of the Old Testament. So if you'll turn a little bit to the left with me here to Zechariah chapter 9, you have Zechariah, Malachi, and then Matthew. So you just keep going left until you hit Zechariah. But Zechariah was one of the last Old Testament books to be written. 
He was a prophet to those who had returned to the promised land after they'd been living in exile in Babylon for many years. Now, that puts the book around 500 years before the book of Matthew. While the first eight chapters of Zechariah's book deal with the struggles that Israel was having at that time, he's writing to practical problems they're experiencing at that time. When you get to chapter 9 of Zechariah and all the way to the end of chapter 14, you start noticing something different. He begins not talking about the present issues, but he begins talking about Israel's future. Chapter 14 culminates with the Messiah appearing on the Mount of Olives to rescue Jerusalem from its enemies and then to set up God's kingdom. Now, in John chapter 6, verse 15, after Jesus fed the 5,000, the people tried to force Jesus to be the king, their king. They tried to force him to become king because offering free lunch from fifth grade all the way up to today is still the best way to get people to vote for you. I love John 6. It's such an interesting story. Jesus, he's teaching, and it's getting late, and he has compassion on the people. The disciples are saying, send the people home. It's a long trip. They're hungry, and he has compassion on them, and he goes, I don't want them to go. They're learning. They're hungry. And so he says, what do you got? And they're like, what are you talking about? We don't have enough time to go buy food. And, and no, no, what do you got? And, and so this kid comes up and he's like, I got these loaves and fishes. And Jesus, of course, multiplies the food and feeds everybody. And so everybody's going, wow, free lunch? This is amazing. And so they try to make Jesus king. Jesus slips away into a deserted area. The disciples find him later on. And he says, listen, I need to spend some time with my dad. I need to go pray. You guys get in the boat, go across the other side of Galilee. And so Jesus prays, they get in the boat, go on the other side, storm comes up, you know the story. Jesus comes down, he walks in the water to them, speaks, the storm's stilled. Not only is the storm stilled, immediately they're on the other side. Well, everybody else wakes up the next day and they're like, we like this free lunch guy, let's go get free lunch today. And so they come looking for Jesus where they left him, where he snuck away and he's not there. And so free lunch is important. I know if I see free lunch somewhere, I will drive far to get it. And so they decide to go all the way around the trip by foot to the other side of Galilee. And when they get there, like, master, master, where'd you go? You know, yesterday was wonderful. We need to repeat this thing. And, you know, Jesus says, you guys should be looking for the, the food that, you know, never, the bread that satisfies that ne you never hunger again. And they were like, yeah, free lunch forever, we're in. And that's when Jesus explains to them, I'm the bread of life. Beautiful time. But when they tried to make him king that first time, Jesus refused to let them. But from that moment forward, they saw Jesus as the guy. He was the guy from the prophecies. And so when Jesus appeared on the Mount of Olives and he asked for a donkey, Everybody's thinking one thing. They're immediately thinking of Zechariah chapter 14. Now, Matthew's there. He's an eyewitness. And watching all these events happen, as he's speaking to his readers, his own people, the Jewish people, trying to prove to them that Jesus is the promised Messiah, he goes, guys, we got it wrong. He goes, we shouldn't have been looking at Zechariah 14. He points his readers to Zechariah 9. 
So let's read Zechariah 9 and then Zechariah 14, a couple verses, and then let's contrast those two sections of Scripture and see why he points us to Zechariah 9 here. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, check this out. Your king comes unto you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's one section. Let's look over at Zechariah 14. We're going to look at verses 3 and 4 and then verse 9. Zechariah 14, 3 says, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem, on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the middle thereof, toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Verse 9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. Both sections call the Messiah a king, but there's a big difference between going forth to fight against the nations and meekly riding in on a donkey. There's a big difference between cleaving a mountain in two and coming to rescue people from their sins, having salvation. Matthew wrote his gospel to reach his people. And he places huge emphasis all throughout his gospel on explaining how Jesus, his actions, fulfilled God's promises about Messiah. Well, this entry into Jerusalem was the moment that so many had been hoping and waiting for. Crowds had been swelling for days as Jesus made his way from Galilee and then into the Jordan Valley and then began to climb up the hills into Judea toward the holy city for Passover. Everyone had a Zechariah 14 moment in their mind. This is it. It's finally happening. But Matthew tells us here that something else that Zechariah talked about needed to happen first. Zechariah 9. Now, Zechariah 9, if we were to read the first eight verses, we would see an amazing prophecy about Alexander the Great's invasion of the Middle East. Judah at the time when Alexander the Great invaded the Middle East was under Persian control. They had a good relationship with uh, the Persian Empire. Daniel, of course, we read about him and his relationship with the king of Persia. And then Nehemiah has a good relationship with the king of Persia. So the nation of Israel, when they were allowed to go back to their homeland and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, they had great favor with the Persian rulers. But the nations around Israel weren't happy about that. They weren't happy about the Jewish people being back in their land at all. They hated them, and they caused a lot of hardship for the Jewish people. Well, Zechariah here in chapter 9, he predicts how God's going to deal. These people were experiencing that, and he says, God's not going to deal with them now, but there's coming a time in the future when he will. And Alexander the Great fulfilled that. If you read through this list in verses 1 through 7, you see all these nations that this army and this king are going to attack and defeat. And this is exactly what Alexander the Great did. When he invaded the Middle East, he defeated all the regions around Israel. But when he got to Judea, he did not attack the Jewish people. In fact, you can read the account in the histories of Josephus. He records it for us. That when the high priest found out that Alexander the Great was coming into Judea, he went out to meet him 
and he showed him the Scriptures, particularly the prophecies of Daniel that said the Greeks would conquer the Persians. Hundreds of years before this, or probably about 150, 200 years before this. Well, what's funny is Alexander, when he heard this, he decided to enter Jerusalem in peace. His generals, in fact, were itching for war, and they, they were kind of talking amongst themselves, saying, what's he doing? Why is he, why is he not giving the command to attack? And then he returned, and he said, no, we're going into the city in peace. And so he went actually up to the temple, offered some sacrifices to the Lord, and then gave a decree, asked basically the Jewish people, what, what would you want of us? And they said, just let us worship the Lord, live by our customs. And Alexander the Great said, fine, that's wonderful. And then he invited any Jewish citizens, if they wanted to come join his army, they could. Zechariah in verse 8 explains that that would happen. All these other nations would be destroyed, but then in verse 8 it says, and I, will, the Lord, will encamp about my house because of the army, because of him that passes by and because of him that returns. And no oppressor shall pass through them anymore, for now have I seen with my eyes. Zechariah says, I've seen the future. I saw the Lord take care of us in this coming time when he takes care of our enemies through this king. But then, Zechariah says in verse 9, this day is coming, but that's not the real reason to rejoice. There's another king coming, and that day will be way better. And that's the context of verse 9. He says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now you have a daughter that's your descendant. What he's saying here is that there's a later day Jerusalem. There's a latter time Jerusalem, a descendant of the Jerusalem that will exist in the time of Alexander the Great, and they will rejoice. And why will this latter time Jerusalem rejoice? Because better than the splendor and military might of any pagan king, Israel's king would finally come to them. But note how the king will come. Your king will come unto you, he is just. He's a righteous man. He's righteous. He's lawful. He's a godly man. He has salvation. It means he bestows freedom, liberation, help. He is lowly, humble, and meek. And he rides upon a donkey, even upon the, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The donkey was not a beast of war. Conquering generals rode horses into war or when entering the city in a victory parade. But the donkey was a mount used by royalty during peace times. Israel's coming king, Zechariah says, will be royalty, but he will be meek. He won't don a crown or wear jewelry or be accompanied by armed soldiers. He will be a righteous man who always does what the Father says, and he will bring and offer and bestow liberation. But what kind of liberation will this humble king offer? Well, verses 10 and 11 tell us. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. The word cut off there, it can mean to destroy, but it can also mean to take away or to permit to fade away. And this is what it means here. This humble king who comes in peace will offer not a war to destroy Israel's enemies, but he will offer an end to war and to the instruments of war. He will bring a message of peace that will extend beyond the people of Israel, but to the entire world, making peace with the heathen. A peace 
made possible by the liberation from sin and the judgment that sin brings upon us. Look at verse 11. As for thee also, by the blood of your covenant, I have sent forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Because of our bondage to sin, that's what we're like. We're like people trapped in the bottom of a dry well. There's no hope of survival, not only being thrown down in the well, but there's nothing, you can't get out, and there's nothing to sustain you while you're down there. But this king will liberate us from the trap of sin and give us the water of life instead. You see, by boarding this donkey on the Mount of Olives and then riding down into Jerusalem, Jesus was laying claim to kingship. I am this king. He was declaring that he's the humble king, kings that Zechariah predicted would come. And so this is the first of three important things that the triumphant entry teaches us. You need to hear this. Jesus legitimately offered the kingdom to Israel and to the world. It was not a phony offer. Jesus didn't come and say, now I'm going to do all this, but I don't really mean it because I've got to go to the cross. No. Jesus legitimately offered paradise to humanity. He offered to fulfill all that God had promised to Israel and to make peace with the nations. He offered it all to us. Now, you and I know what our answer was, but we need to understand that he made the offer. Jesus said, I will be the answer to all of humanity's problems. I will bring peace, I will bring hope, and I will bring life. The Son of God who had resisted any attempt to make him king on this day laid claim to the throne. God offered us everything we could ever desire. Now, the question, of course, comes up, well, why this day? Why not after free lunch day? Why now? Well, Matthew goes on to explain. So let's go back to Matthew 21, and we'll look at the second important thing that the triumphant entry teaches us. In Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 6, after he tells us this fulfilled prophecy occurred, he says in Matthew 21, verse 6, and the disciples, they went and did as Jesus said, as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their clothes, and then they set Jesus thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees, and they strawed them in the way. One of my favorite things I did when I was in Israel was walking down there and imagining in the crowds asking for the Lord to rescue them. Adoring him, it's hard not to imagine what it would be like when Jesus descends from heaven with the host of heaven and he defeats all of our, all the enemies and he comes to rule and reign. To think what it would have been like to be in that crowd in that moment. We'll be making an announcement about our coming Israel trip soon in the next few weeks, so I encourage you to start saving up. It's going to be a wonderful time. And the multitudes, verse 9, that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I remember we had someone visited the previous church I pastored. They were new believers, and we sang a song that said, Hosanna. And they left because they thought, they said, we came here to worship Jesus, not some God named Hosanna. <laughs> I'm glad someone got to them and explained 
Hosanna is not a name for God. It's an Aramaic exclamation, meaning please help or please save. And the Jewish people had come to use it as a religious form of adoration, similar to how maybe when we're worshiping, you might shout hallelujah or say praise the Lord or amen or something like that. It's a a phrase that we all know we've heard. We know what it means. And the phrase, of course, implies that the one being praised is the one who can help, that they have the right to govern, to rule, to make decisions, to bring change. Bring change. Save us, please. Hosanna, we adore you, Son of David. Now, Son of David is a messianic title that was used throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. They would always refer to him as Son of David. It's a mess- you know, people say, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Yeah, well, he also never told any, which is not true, but he also never told people to stop calling him Son of David. You know, if somebody was kept calling me Bob, I'd be like, my name's Will. Stop calling me Bob. Jesus responded to Son of David. They're saying, please help us, Messiah. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. You're the one that God's anointed. The word blessed here, it means, describes how God has bestowed power, someone with special power or a special anointing. The Lord has sent you here to save us. The Lord has anointed you with special power to pull it off. Hosanna in the highest. You're not just anybody coming to Jerusalem for the peace of Passover. You are the promised salvation from the heavens, from God Almighty above. Now, I don't know about you, but when I don't see crowds usually chant or say the same thing over and over unless they, everybody's kind of in the know. When I've gone to like Christian concerts and we all sing the song together, it's because we all know the song. So the idea is that these are not just random things people are saying. These are phrases and ideas that were a liturgy of that time period, a way that they'd been taught to say things that were in Scripture. And so this phrase, even though it's not word for word, because again, it's more of a liturgy that they were taught in that day, but it comes from Scripture in Psalm 118. So let's turn to Psalm 118 because clearly Matthew is pointing us there and see what that has to say. Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 are what they are referring to when they utter these phrases. Just a little background on Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is one of the Hallel Psalms, a series of Psalms, 113 to 118, that were incorporated into the celebration of Passover. So, I mean, this is something that would be very much in their minds as they're coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Psalm 18 being the last of those group of Psalms, it was sung when the festal procession would enter the temple gates to worship. Now, the context of this Psalm is one of Israel's kings probably David, and he had, whoever the king was, they had experienced God's discipline for something they'd done. But then they returned to the Lord, and they trust God to rescue them from the trouble they caused by their sin. God did indeed rescue them, and then the king returns triumphantly into Jerusalem, and the latter parts of the psalm depict God's anointed king entering Jerusalem to the praises of God's people. But even though that's the case, The last few verses were always understood by those who taught the Scriptures back then to speak of the Messiah entering Jerusalem to take up His role as Israel's King. Everybody understood it that way. 
So yes, it referred to a real event in one of their king's lives, but they knew the end part referred to Messiah. Now, if we isolate verses 25 and 26 here, save now, I beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. If we isolate those two verses from the rest of the psalm, well, then the crowd shouts as Jesus rides toward the city are exactly what we'd expect to see if they think he's the king. If they're convinced he's the guy, well, then this is what we'd expect them to say especially when we look at the verse right before. Verse 24, this is the day. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, some of you who are older, you probably know the old song. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Yes, stop, it's heresy. I mean, the idea is not false. I mean, yes, God makes every day, and yes, we should be glad and rejoice in it, but that's not what this verse is talking about. Not at all. It's not talking about your day. It's talking about His day, this day. Sometimes we have days that are not worthy of rejoicing, hard days, rough days, days of weeping, but this day was different. This was a day that God had been preparing his people for, for a very long time. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, God, through an angel, tells Daniel the exact day Messiah will enter Jerusalem, this day. So many other scriptures pointed to a specific day where God's people would experience wonderful joy because they would meet their Messiah. This is why Jesus, by the way, in another account of the triumphant entry in Luke chapter 20, verse 40, said, when the Pharisees came to him and they, or the religious leaders came to him and said, tell your followers to stop it. You, you know what they're saying. They're, they're telling everyone you're the Messiah, that you're the king. Just tell them to stop. And what did Jesus say? He said, if, if no person adores me on this day, we're going to have a rock and roll concert. The very rocks are going to cry out. Maybe just rock, not roll. If no one would adore him on that day, the very rocks would praise him. <laughs> Not a good joke? I saw a cup in, in the thing, one, what must be one of the worship team, and said, don't be an idiot. And I said, Lord, your servant hears. <laughs> Just didn't obey. Jesus would be recognized. He would be greeted as Messiah one way or another because God had said it would happen in Psalm 118 on this day. And this is the second thing that makes the triumphant entry so important that we need to learn. All sorts of people throughout history have claimed to have the answer to humanity's problems or to be the answer to humanity's problems. You may have heard the phrase that the villains are always the heroes of their own story. I'm sure that Adolf Hitler thought he was the answer to all the world's problems. And so many other people who've done wicked things throughout history thought they knew the solutions. Numerous people throughout history have offered to lead humanity into a place of peace and prosperity, but only one person in history was acknowledged as such on the day God said Messiah would be acknowledged, and that was Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. So the triumphant entry is important because it pinpoints for us, this is the king. He offered the kingdom, and he has a right to do so because he is the one God predicted would do it. But despite Jesus' claim to the throne of Israel and the crowd's recognition that he was the rightful king, we know that Palm Sunday is followed by Good Friday, right? 
So what happened? If the offer of the kingdom was legitimate, and if there was recognition of the claim, why are things the way they are today? Like, why, are, why isn't Jesus ruling now? Because there was one more thing that happened that was important on Palm Sunday that we need to understand. And so let's go back to Matthew 21. Keep your finger here because we'll be back in Psalm 18 in a moment. But look back at Matthew 21. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11. Matthew tells us this. He says, And when he, Jesus, was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. The word move there means to be in an uproar. There was a clash. The whole city was in a state of anxiety and apprehension. There was a clash. Why? Well, because there were two competing ideas in the city. I guarantee you, everyone in Jerusalem knew who Jesus was. They weren't coming out going, who is this? I've never seen him before. Everyone knew who Jesus was. It was a sneer. It was a critique. Who is this? Our little king coming in on a donkey? And then there was another crowd going, this is our prophet. He's Galilean like us. He's our man, Jesus of Nazareth. Most Galileans in that day, they, and by the way, both of them were wrong, because Jesus isn't just a prophet, and he's not just from Galilee. Most Galileans saw themselves as patriots. They were always looking for an excuse to overthrow the Roman Empire. Historians record that the roads in Galilee were lined with crucifixions because of all the pushback against the Roman occupation. Most of Jesus' followers came from Galilee, and when they came here with Jesus, they were ready to rumble. In contrast, most Judeans, they might not like the Romans, but they didn't want anyone else telling them how to live their lives either. They didn't like Jesus. Every time Jesus came, he would tell them how to live their lives, and they thought, we know how to live our lives. That's not the kind of king we're looking for. You're not supposed to come here and teach us about God. We have rabbis for that. Go deal with the Romans, and then we can live our lives. Until you're ready to do that, until you're ready to get on a horse instead of a donkey, we don't really want anything to do with you. They also did not want to suffer the consequences if the Romans decided to crack down hard on someone claiming to be Israel's king. Both of these perspectives are humanistic because both perspectives want to use Jesus as a means to accomplish their own plans. Make our lives better here and now, Jesus. Stop making our lives worse, Jesus. Neither perspective is submitted to the king, which is why we can't isolate Psalm 118 verses 24 through 26 to understand what's going on here. We need to get the context. So let's look back at Psalm 118 and find out what's really going on here. The portion that's considered prophetic truly begins in verse 22. You could probably go all the way up to verse 19, but verse 22 is where we really know we're talking about Jesus. And in verse 22, it tells us even before the words would be uttered to acknowledge his kingship, that Messiah would be rejected. It says, the stone which the builders refused, rejected, 
is become the headstone of the corner, the chief cornerstone. The first and most important building block you put in is the cornerstone. Everything else shapes around that. The first and foremost important building block for God's kingdom is Jesus. And if, if we come to Jesus and we say, listen, we, we've got everything here, we just need you to be the capstone. We've got everything built, we know what we need to do, we just need you to be the capstone. That's a problem because Jesus is not a figurehead. He is the king. He calls the shots. Not you and not me. He's our creator. He's God Almighty. So the stone which the builders rejected, the Lord says here, I am going to build my kingdom, but it's going to have to be a different way since you won't accept the offer I make. And the truth is, no human being could have ever seen how God would do that. Verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. In other words, this plan is from the Lord. No human could have come up with it. No human could have imagined it. It's marvelous in our eyes. It's shocking. It's stunning. It's unthinkable. Why is it unthinkable and shocking? Well, what does a king normally do when his subjects rebel? Well, you only have two options. You eliminate them or you subdue them. Otherwise, you're not really king. How can a king reign if everyone rejects the king's plan because they're following their own idea of the plan? You're not a king then. And when your own people rebelling against you, normally the only solution you can see is after you try to convince them to get on with your plan, if they refuse, it's to subdue them or eliminate them. And yet, God finds a new way. We've been learning about, in 1 John, God's out-of-this-world love, right? Well, God's out-of-this-world love came up with another solution, an unimaginable plan for us rebels. And we're going to get into that in detail on Good Friday. But that plan was the cross. Now, before we close, there's one more important truth we need to examine from Psalm 118, and it's on the other side of the verses we looked at earlier. Look at verse 27. It's almost like the the author of the song bookends these two thoughts to remind the people who are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, what that means. It says in verse 27, God is the Lord, which has showed us light. I said it just a moment ago. Jesus is not a figurehead. I heard a politician recently say, it's fine being religious, just don't let your religion affect how you act as an American. Jesus is not my figurehead. Christianity is not a box I check when you ask what my religion is. Jesus doesn't have donors he owes favorites to, and he's not propped up by lobbying groups who have their own agendas. He is God in the flesh, which makes him more than just a king, but he is the king of all kings and all kingdoms, including my own little kingdom known as my life. And because he's the Lord and not me, because the Messiah is God Almighty, he's the one who has to show us light. I don't come up with it on my own. 
We need His illumination to understand truth, what's best for our world. The truth doesn't come from inside me. It's not found in my ideas about what the world needs or what I think I need. It's not found in my own ideas of right and wrong or my own agendas of how to fix things. Truth needs to be revealed. And so this is the third thing that makes the triumphant entry so important. Jesus came to give us light. But while even one group said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they didn't even understand what that meant. Because they never submitted to the king. Jesus legitimately offered the kingdom to Israel, but Israel said what? We will not have this man to rule over us. Think about that for just a minute. Pilate came to him and said, are you a king? And he said, yes. And he said, well, tell me what your, what your kingdom's like. And he did. And he mocked him. What's truth? I don't need your light, man. Your light's not going to fix Light? That's not going to fix anything. I've got this all figured out. Tell me how to deal with these people that I'm always at odds with, your people. If we fast forward 2,000 years, this is still the declaration of so many hearts. I will not have this man to rule over me. Promise me everything. I don't want it because I don't want your rule. And so we say today, the Bible isn't good. I refuse to do what it says. Jesus isn't good. I refuse to bow the knee to him. So I ask you this morning, Jesus is offering you the kingdom. He's offering you eternal life. Just prove the fact that he's the one. So the only question is this, will you have this man to rule over you? What will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? What is your declaration in regards to Jesus' claim and Jesus' offer? Will you let this king rule your life? You know, the Bible tells us that as Jesus made his way down the Mount of Olives and into the city, his response to the event was different than any other response around him. There was only two responses around him, either celebration or grumbling. He had one group is going, Hosanna, Hosanna. The other group's going, tell everybody, tell them to shut up. And then they're just saying it louder or not, or Hosanna, Hosanna. Get on board or get out of the way. Get on board with our kingdom plan or get out of the way. The city's in an uproar. Jesus weeps. And after multiple confrontations with the religious leaders over the next few days, Jesus uttered these very important words in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. He says in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stone them which are sent unto you, how often I wanted to gather your children together, even like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not. You didn't want it. Behold, because of that, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I know Jesus doesn't have a bad memory. They just said it just a bit ago. Clearly, what Jesus is saying is, you didn't understand what you were saying. The offer of the kingdom at this moment was withdrawn 
And God's marvelous plan to rescue us rebels moved forward to go to the cross. On Good Friday, and I encourage you to come out Friday night, it's my favorite service of the year. Because it's where the king who has salvation, you look at what he did to secure it for us. I know that the resurrection is exciting, and it should be. It's the cornerstone of why we can be what we are. There's something special about the love of God shown in the cross. And we'll talk, we'll look at the rest of Psalm 118, which talks about this radically different response to rebels. We'll see how the king of all kingdoms, who deserves our submission, is a king who is ultimate love. So, Lord, we give you this time now to remember that love on the cross. As we sing, as we go over in our mind what it means that you took our place. Lord, we choose to be those who submit to you as our king. We choose to be those who say, Lord, reign in me. Rule over me. You are my king. In Jesus' name, amen.